The psalmist says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendour and majesty. The Lord makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil that makes their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. And now let's come to God in prayer. We pray together. We come to you, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah. We come freely and joyfully because you welcome us. We come with our thanks for all that has been good this week. Glad for the simple pleasures of everyday life. Pleased to have found reasons to laugh or to smile. Grateful for the many blessings we receive each day. We come with honesty to admit that not everything has been good. Some of us have been worried about things that are happening. Some of us have felt sad or lonely as we miss loved ones. Some of us have found it hard just to keep going from day to day. We come needing to let go of the things we regret. To say sorry for the unkind or unhelpful things that we have said or done. To let go of the bad feelings, bitterness or grudges that weigh us down. To be set free to being a fresh life today as we try once more to follow Jesus. We come to meet with you, the God who we cannot see, but who is always near. The God of Lydia, Anna, Elizabeth and Mary the God of Paul, Peter, and of Jesus. Accept our worship and refresh us for the week ahead. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now we seem a little thin on the ground for people under 18 today, so you're all going to have to be children at heart and join in. I wonder what your favourite foods are. Anybody going to offer what their favourite food is or your favourite meal? Marmite. Marmite. Oh, fantastic. Woman after my own heart, a lover of Marmite. <laughs> who loves Marmite? Hands up. Okay, a few of us. Who hates Marmite? <laughs> uh, a few of them. 
Well, that's okay. You love it or loathe it. Marmite is a, is a good food. Thank you for starting us off there. Other favourite foods that people have? Chorizo. Chorizo. I never say that properly. Who likes chorizo? Spicy sausage. Okay. Who doesn't like it? Who can't eat it? <laughs> Okie dokie. So that's Marmite chorizo. Oh, I'm sure there must be more things with that that people enjoy eating. Steak. Steak. Cheese. Haggis, fish and chips, strawberries. Say that again, mince and tosses. I had that yesterday. Okay, so all sorts of different things. Who likes eating Chinese food? Quite a few. Indian? African? West Indian? Oh, there's quite a few no's coming here. We know what we like and what we don't like. We all have different things that we like. And aren't we fortunate that we can all go and choose what we eat? I expect if I went round the room and asked people what you were going to eat today, just about everybody would have made choices from several options. But not everybody, obviously, we know, has those options And if we'd had more children, we'd have talked a little bit about what we call staple foods. Now, you all know what staple foods are, so I'm not going to try and explore that with you as a concept. But perhaps you can remind me, in case I've forgotten, what the staples are in different cultures. Rice, Rice, yeah. Wheat, potatoes. Cassava, yeah. Thank you. Nan, yeah. Sorry? Pasta, Pasta yeah. Maize. Maize, yep. Good. So they're all sort of carbohydrate-based things, aren't they? Rice, pasta, wheat, oats for good Scots we've got here, and for this strange English woman who likes oats. Um, pasta, rice, they're all kind of carbohydrates. The basic things that people need to keep them going, to keep them strong. And we're going to thinking, basically, about one kind of staple food today. But first, we're going to hear a couple of very, very short parables that Jesus told us about food. Our first reading will be taken from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 13, and also Matthew, chapter 13, verse 33. Matthew 5, verse 13. I'll be reading from the New International Reader's Version. You are the salt of the earth, but suppose the salt loses its saltiness. How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, It will be thrown out. People will walk all over it. Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. Jesus told them still another story. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, he said. A woman mixed it into a large amount of flour. The yeast walked its way all through the dough. Thank you very much, Sam. So salt and yeast, two tiny little stories that Jesus told about food. 
And that's kind of the link to where we're going today. Now, I'm going to just pretend I'm an Anglican and wash my hands, because uh, we're actually going to make some bread this morning. And I know you wouldn't want it with my mucky paws in it, so I will actually wash them. Again, if we'd had more children, we could have spent a bit more time exploring what goes into bread. But this is a recipe for 30-minute bread off the Persil website. I tested it in the week. It does work. It took me exactly the deal set in the clock. That's no good. Okay, well, we'll see how we go. So the ingredients of this bread are flour, This is where I just have to uh, work quite quickly, get my flour into my bowl. Leo, can you come and give me a hand? Because I can really do with somebody to do some stirring for me. Not that kind of stirring, mixing stirring. We've got a big spoon. Now, what have we got here? I've heard somebody whisper it. Yeast. Okay. We have half a teaspoon of yeast. Very small, very unimpressive looking stuff. I'm sure you've all seen it, but just, you know, humour me. Can you pop that in for us and stir it in? Can you stir it in with a big spoon for me? We have some salt. So this is where our two little parables kind of fit in. Even less salt than we have yeast. Half the amount of salt. Okay. How am I doing on my timing, Neil? (laughs) One minute, okay. We have oil. And then this is the secret ingredient for the 30-minute bread. It's fizzy water. I'd never heard of bread with fizzy water before, but there you go. Okie dokie. Right. So we need to start stirring really quite quickly, Leo, to get this water worked in. Faster, faster, faster. That's fantastic. All right, let's try that. Can I have a go? Fantastic. Thank you very much, Leah. That's great. Now, the recipe, as on the website, does have a little bit too much water, in my opinion. So I've reduced the amount of water. Now, there we are. We have some dough. Now, what is going to happen is you're going to sing, and I'm going to knead the dough whilst we sing. Now, my glamorous assistant is going to take the bread and bake it. Thank you, glamorous assistant. And we're going to hear our second, our third Bible reading. Bible reading is taken from Gospel according to St. John, chapter 6, from verses 30 to 35. So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you give us? What will you do so that we can see it and believe you? Long ago, our people ate the manna in the desert. It is written in the scriptures. The Lord gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, What I'm about to tell you is true. It is not Moses who, gave, who has given the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven. He gives life to the world. Sir, they asked, 
Give us this bread from now on. Then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever go hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. Now, if anybody doesn't want to sit at the front and listen to me, we have got some cakes and biscuits that can be decorated at the back. And I'm very easy about people who want to go and do a bit of cake decorating. Um, if, particularly if perhaps if Leo and Bethany feel like going and decorating some cakes and biscuits yourselves, please feel free. We're going to start by hearing two graces. You've probably heard them before, but let's just hear them again. Lord, grant that we may not be like cornflakes, lightweight, brittle and cold, but like porridge, warming, comforting and full of goodness. Lord, grant that we may not be like porridge, stiff and stodgy and hard to stir, but like cornflakes, crisp, fresh and ready to serve. I'm not sure if those are actually genuine, but they appear in quite a few books of graces. If you were going to compare yourself to a kind of food, I wonder what that would be and why you would choose that particular kind of food. A long time ago, I was at a a minister's training day and we were asked to imagine what kind of cake we were. Are you like a meringue? All crisp and crunchy, but not much substance, and it just kind of crumples under pressure. Or are you like a jam donut? You know, kind of sticky and gooey, and when you bite it, everything oozes out. Or are you like something else? It seems a daft question. It may seem very daft to be asked what kind of food you think you're like. But, you know, the first time Jesus ever used an I am saying about himself with what is called a predicate, I am something or other, he said, I am bread. Or more specifically, as we've heard, the bread of life. Jesus compared himself to a staple food something very basic, something very ordinary. By calling himself bread, a lot of Jewish hearers would have understood him to be comparing himself to the law, to the Torah. Because to a lot of Jews, the law of Moses was seen as a kind of bread, staples, basics for their spiritual and, in their case, daily life. So when Jesus described himself as being the bread of life, as living bread, he was almost saying, look, look at me, this is the law being lived out. I'm showing you what the law means. It's not perhaps surprising that that's in John's Gospel, because it's John's Gospel that describes Jesus as the word made flesh. For us in the 21st century, especially those of us who've been in churches for quite a long time, 
The languages of parables, of metaphors, and simile are quite familiar to us. We know a lot about symbols. And so when we hear this about Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, when we hear him describing us as being like salt, when we hear him describing the kingdom as being like yeast, it can just kind of gloss over us because we've heard it all before. So we're going to spend a little bit of time today thinking about bread and about the incredible symbolism that actually can be packed into something so basic and ordinary. So we start then with Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. It's just amazing, isn't it, that Jesus would describe himself as something so ordinary. I'm a bag of rice. I'm a plate of pasta. I'm a sack of spuds. The simplest source of carbohydrates the basis of everyday human nutrition. That's what Jesus compared himself to. Very uncomplicated, perhaps a bit boring, certainly not exciting, but absolutely necessary. And so that is actually an incredibly bold claim that Jesus made about himself and about his work. It's that important, it's that basic, it's that essential. And now, of course, we've got to be careful and not strain the analogy too far. You know as well as I do, if you push metaphors too far, they break. But it seems to me that the heart of John's Gospel, especially, is something about our spiritual nature. And the fact that we, as human beings, get hungry not just for physical food but also for that which nourishes our minds and our hearts and our spirits. It seems to me that Jesus sees our spiritual well-being as as important as our physical well-being. Looking after our spiritual selves, however we understand that, is as important as feeding our bodies And Jesus says, look, you know, I'm the one who can help you with this. He goes on to use other I am sayings in that Gospel of John, which give us different angles on how that works. But Jesus sees himself as absolutely essential. Now, a loaf of bread doesn't look like very much, does it? And I suspect that actually most of us don't eat dry bread very often. We'll put on some butter or some olive spread or something, and then we'll put on the marmite or the cheese or the jam or the meat. We might toast it. We might dip it into boiled eggs. It's very plain. It's very everyday. It's pretty cheap to buy. And especially if you go and buy the pre-sliced variety, it's incredibly easy to use. And yet, if we're prepared to go a little bit with some of these Bible images and use our imaginations, we can begin to see how even something as simple as a loaf of bread can be packed 
with symbolism and meaning for us. So let's start with that one-line parable Jesus told us about a woman making bread. She takes a little bit of yeast. It wouldn't have been dried powdery stuff in her day. It would have been a tiny bit of live yeast. And she works it into her dough. And once that's done, you can't see the yeast anymore. It's completely dispersed through the dough. And it works silently to transform that mixture, making it rise making it become pleasant to eat. This is one of the parables that Jesus tells about God's kingdom, which is not visible in the way of an earthly kingdom, which has no geographical boundaries, no parliament, no armies. It's completely hidden within the ordinary world. Silently and gradually, It transforms it into what, God willing, it is intended to be. If we don't put yeast in the dough, we end up with something that's rather more like pastry or a rather hard, savoury biscuit. But it isn't just enough to put in the yeast, is it? It actually needs the right conditions to do its work. It needs warmth. It needs moisture. And it needs food. And I think part of our job as followers of Jesus is to play our part for the working of the yeast of God's kingdom. Doing our part to make the right conditions for it to work. Giving it the warmth, the moisture, the food that it needs. We are called to work for God's kingdom. And so we have to work that yeast in and help make the right conditions for it to work. And if the yeast is a symbol of God's kingdom, then the salt, at least as understood by Matthew, is a symbol of the believers, the people like us. Now, living in the world that we do live in, when you can go into any supermarket and buy a ready meal and slap it in your microwave, where you can buy frozen anything, canned goodness knows what, and dried everything else, sometimes we forget how important salt was until just a couple of hundred years ago, a hundred years ago. It was not just something you put on your food to make it taste nicer. It was actually something you put on your food to preserve it. I can remember as a child, my mum salting beans in a jar at some point. Some people still do it. Preservation of food is an important use of salt. But also in the first century, salt was incredibly valuable. We all know the stories about saying, is somebody worth their salt? Salt was important. You had to be worth getting paid it. And I guess it's tricky for us in the 21st century in the West because we're very often told that too much salt is bad for us, that we should be putting a bit less salt in our food, not a bit more. And yet, have you ever had bread with no salt in it? 
When I was in Manchester, a friend of mine, actually one of the friends that was up the other week, made me a lovely loaf of bread in her new bread maker, and she brought it over to the church to me, lovely and warm, and I rushed down to the kitchen, and I got a knife, and I cut it, and... Should have missed the salt out. We are called to be like that salt. With that function of preservation and flavouring of the world of which we are part. And there's a sense that just as the yeast disappears into the bread, so does the salt. You don't get a lump of salt in your bread. It's dispersed through it. You can't get it out again. And that's the kind of difference that we should be making in the world. That we as Christians just somehow make the world taste a bit nicer. A better place to be. It doesn't have to be brash and public. It can be very quiet and private. So yeast and salt. But there are three more ingredients in a basic bread recipe. And each of those, to a lesser or greater degree, appears in the Bible with a use of symbolism. In the Bible times, vegetable oils were very widely used, not just in cooking as we use it today, but also in skin care. In fact, if you went out to the the Middle East, you would find that a lot of Asian people still use olive oil on their skin to soften it and protect it. But in Bible times, it was specifically used in the act of anointing. You probably recall the story of when Aaron was made a high priest And he was anointed with copious amounts of oil. They poured it over his head and it dripped down his beard. Doesn't sound too appealing to me, but there you go. But it was a big, important symbol. And today, in many Christian traditions, newly ordained ministers are anointed on the head, a cross drawn with oil, as a symbol of God's anointing. Within the Christian tradition, there is a strong history of anointing people who are ill. If you happen to go up to the vestry sometime and look on my desk, you will find there is a bottle of baby oil and usually a bottle of olive oil on my desk for precisely that purpose of anointing. Oil is a symbol of blessing, a symbol of healing, a symbol of being made whole a symbol of God's touch on our lives. And even if we just go with a very down-to-earth understanding of oil as something that somehow binds the dough together and stops it sticking to the tin, then that's quite a useful way of thinking about ourselves, that we need to be bound together by the love of God, by God's spirit, which is sometimes understood as oil. And then the one that I keep slurping because I'm having a hot day. Water. A very powerful biblical symbol associated with life and well-being. Water to quench our thirst. Water to refresh tired bodies. Water to wash away the dust and dirt of life. Cleansing, invigorating and renewing. They're all important aspects of what it means for us to live as Jesus' followers. Of course, baptism is the ultimate kind of watery symbol that we have. 
the, the actual going down into the water, dying with Christ and rising with Christ is kind of language that we use. But also that idea of having a good bath, getting completely clean, coming out feeling fresh and new and ready to go on. Jesus described himself as living water, water that quenches the thirst in a special way. One more ingredient, kind of vital to making bread, but it gets a bit harder to make the link to the Bible, and that's flour. And that's because actually you won't find a symbolic reference to flour in the Bible. I looked very hard this week with the help of real and electronic concordances. So I hope you'll kind of forgive me if I cheat a little bit and move from flour to its source, which is wheat or grain, which is mentioned all through the Bible. Grain is absolutely (coughs) packed with potential. We thought a couple of weeks ago about how in each tiny little seed is a possibility of a new plant. But also if that's a wheat seed or something of that, or a corn seed, something of that that kind, it has the potential to be made into flour and a flour into bread. Whether those kernels of wheat are buried in the earth to grow into a new plant or whether they are crushed to make flour, there is a sense of sacrifice, of dying and giving out what it is made to be. There's that beautiful line in John's Gospel, unless an ear of wheat falls to the ground, it remains a single grain. Unless an ear of wheat is crushed, we can't get the flour. And so we combine together those ingredients to make our bread. The symbol of the kingdom, the yeast. The symbol of the believer, the salt. The symbol of cleansing and refreshing, the water, anointing and healing, the oil, and the corn itself, the wheat, the potential and sacrifice. And we pummel the dough, and we shape it, and we bake it, and all being well in a few minutes, we will break it. The last meal that Jesus shared with his friends involved breaking bread. Not the rich, yeasted bread that we will have, but the simple biscuit-like bread of the Passover. It was made quickly. They didn't have the 30-minute recipe then, so they had to do it uh, slightly differently. And they ate it the day it was made. But this bread was packed with symbolism of the God who had delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt. And so Jesus picked up that ordinary bread, already packed with meaning, gave thanks, broke it, and said to his followers, this is my body, broken for you. For Christians who meet around the communion table, The little morsel of bread we choose to accept is absolutely crammed with symbolism. Quite how we understand communion varies even amongst Baptists. 
Some people think it's an ordinance, some people think it's a sacrament, some people use language of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, and, and so it goes on. But however we understand it, it is a place and a moment where we share something as unspectacular as a piece of bread and are invited to contemplate the things of eternity. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. We come now with our prayers for other people. And at the end of those prayers, we will join together in the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus taught his followers. Just a word about a line we say in that about bread. We say, give us today our daily bread. Now, those who read Greek, or those who read my blog this morning, either of those, will know that the original language, it's talk- it uses a phrase that can be understood as bread for tomorrow, which basically means sufficient bread. Give us today enough bread. That's what we're praying for ourselves. But I hope when we get to that point, we will also pray it for those in this world who today are hungry. And when we get to the point of using the Lord's Prayer, please pray it in your own first language. Let's pray together. Invisible God, whose kingdom coexists with the confusion of our disordered world, we come to you now, seeking your healing and wholeness for those in need. This morning, as we debated what to eat for breakfast, a child died of malnutrition in a refugee camp or a famine-ravaged land. We pray for those who this day would rejoice to receive a cup of rice or a crust of bread. Remembering especially those in Somalia and Kenya. To those who procure and distribute aid, grant wisdom and compassion. To governments, give openness and a sense of responsibility. And to those in need, give hope. As we wash the dishes or loaded them into a dishwasher, someone, somewhere, reached a dry well or a poisoned stream. We pray for those who do not have access to safe, clean water, remembering that this affects all forms of life, not just human life. We pray for the work of organisations that provide irrigation schemes, tube wells, and sanitary toilets in some of the world's most deprived nations. Whilst we have enjoyed worshipping together, people we know and love have faced pain, anxiety or loss. We pray for wholeness for all who are infirm or diseased in body, mind or spirit. We remember those who mourn the loss of a loved one, and especially today, the family of Douglas McLachlan. We thank you for Douglas, for all that he showed us of your love, 
and that he is now at peace. In a moment of silence, we name before you those whom we love and who need to know your gentle touch or upholding presence. As we go on from here, back to our homes, back to our work or play, we know that the world won't suddenly have changed, that the problems won't have vanished or the injustices been overcome. And so we pray for ourselves, that we would be like salt in a world in need of savour and saving. Show us how we, as the body of Christ, like the communion bread, may be broken and shared to bring hope and healing to those we meet. We make our prayers in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen.